Well, again, good evening. This evening we continue in our series of studies in First Chronicles. And you can turn to First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 3, where we left off last week. Now, because this is a genealogy and it's a long list of names, I will be doing more summaries than anything else rather than reading through the list of names. We will be mentioning a number of different individuals listed in the genealogy. This evening, we now find ourselves in in this next section that takes us actually from verse 3, chapter 2, all the way to chapter 9, verse 44. And we're not going to go through that much this evening, but this section is Israel or Jacob's descendants. And we start with Judah's descendants. Judah is one of the uh, 12 sons of Israel or Jacob, and so we'll be looking at his descendants. And the reason that Ezra recorded these things had more to do with being able to substantiate and certify in many ways individuals that had come back from Babylon after the exile, after the captivity, being able to sort of certify that they were who they said they were. These genealogical records were very important, especially for the priests. They couldn't serve as priests unless they had the records to prove that they were descended from certain ancestors. So these genealogical records were extremely important. Now, the interesting thing about the descendants of Judah, of course, is these genealogical records will take us all the way down to eventually to Joseph and even Mary because they were both descendants of Judah. And of course, the Messiah, we're told in Genesis chapter 49, uh, we see that uh, Jacob or Israel made it clear that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. And that became the kingly tribe, of course, the David's and his descendants. So we're going to look at a lot of that this evening. And so while these genealogical records aren't that interesting per se, they're extremely important and were extremely important to the Jews at that time. Let's open the word of prayer. I'm going to highlight a few of the descendants mentioned, and it's kind of a summary of some of the account of the Old Testament. But let's uh, let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, even these portions of your word, which may at first glance appear uninteresting and unimportant, are extremely important. For without these genealogies, we couldn't substantiate the Messiah having been descended from Judah, and then David, and all the way down through the line of kings. And we're grateful for that, but we now this evening, I want to learn a few things and apply a few things, and may the lesson this evening be practical as well in helping us to know how to pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start by uh, looking at chapter 2, uh, verse 3. Now, in verse 3, we, we get into the descendants of Judah, and there's a number that are listed there, and I want to just look at verses 3 through 4. We read there that the sons of Judah were Er, Onan, and Shelah, and these three were born to him by a Canaanite woman. So they were actually Canaanite, uh, half Canaanite, that is, the, the, the children. Uh, the daughter of Shua was the um, Canaanite woman. Er, Judah's fo- firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah, And Judah had five sons in all. And then it goes on to list some of the sons and the descendants, which we'll talk about in a minute. 
This is an interesting account in the Bible. It comes up in Genesis chapter 38. The whole chapter is given to Judah's descendants and some of what happened. I don't want to just go through it quickly. Even within the genealogy, some of this is mentioned. There were the sons of Judah. We, we've just mentioned those sons there. There were several. Uh, five, actually, in all mentioned. And the fact that Judah married a Canaanite woman has to be dealt with first. The fact that he married a Canaanite woman and had three sons with her is the first problem. They weren't supposed to intermarry, really, with the Canaanites. Now, remember, Judah is supposed to be the ancestor of Messiah. And if that child was a Canaanite, then that that could be problematic, but not necessarily, because there were others that were in the line of Christ. But the whole point is that he was living outside of God's will in Genesis 38, as we see plainly. He was kind of doing his own thing. Judah had had an interesting experience, remember, with, with, with Joseph. He was part of the brothers getting together and throwing him into a pit, selling him into slavery. Uh, Judah was, was involved in that whole process. And so it seems like after that, it seems to me that Judah sort of went off the rails. He went and did his own thing, moved away, kind of lived on his own, married a Canaanite woman, had children, but things didn't work out very well. His first two sons were wicked. Not surprisingly, he wasn't serving the Lord at this time. They were ungodly men that were actually put to death by the Lord. That's how wicked they were. In fact, Ur, who's mentioned there, the firstborn, he married a woman named Tamar. She comes up later in the scripture, but they had no descendants, and then he died because the Lord put him to death. He was wicked, as we read. And then the other brother, Onan, was required by law, the lever at marriage, to marry Tamar. And by the way, you know, obviously the law hadn't been given, but the practice of the lever at marriage was already in place. The practice was in place, whereas the law had not been put in place. All the law did was codify the practice. So they did follow this practice called the lever at marriage. And if the son died without children, the next son would marry the woman, and then they would have children, and then the inheritance of those children, the, the first child, uh, would be given from the first son to that child. So this was the way to sort of keep things within the family. Onan was required to marry Tamar and to have a child to continue his brother's line. He refused to fulfill his responsibility to Tamar as her brother-in-law. And as a result, he was put to death as well. And then there was this third son at this time, Shelah, who was required to marry Tamar and have a child to continue his brother's line. But Judah, in the process, was visiting prostitutes. And his wife had died, so he was doing this, and he unknowingly slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because she pretended to be a prostitute. You might be thinking, well, how could he not know? Well, the prostitutes would veil themselves, and it, it was easy to deceive Judah, which she did. And again, you can read all about this in Genesis 38. But Judah had not fulfilled his promise of marriage to Tamar now that Shelah had grown up. He was supposed to give her his third son, and I imagine after two sons dying, being married to this woman, he thought twice. So he's holding off. She decides to pretend to be a prostitute in order to have a child with Judah. And you can see that already within the Israeli culture, in the Jewish culture at this point, there was so much sin, so much personal failure, and still God worked. 
So Judah had not fulfilled his promise uh, since Sheila had grown up. And he, and he propositioned Tamara. She became pregnant after they slept together. See, God was working even through these things. I think it's so important to realize that sin is sin. Men and women, we, we sin. But God works through those sins. That is, he's not the author of sin. But when we fail and we sin, God still works. Isn't that comforting? Can I hear an amen? Because you sin and you think, oh, I ruined God's plan. You can't ruin God's plan. That doesn't mean your sin is right. It doesn't mean what Judah did was right. It doesn't mean what Aaron Onan did was right. He was supposed to marry Shelah to Tamar. He didn't. He's wrong. Then he goes and plays uh, around with this woman, and she pretends to be a prostitute. All of that happens, and yet this is the ancestral line of Christ. So you see, I'm so encouraged to know that God can work through failures, dysfunctional families. Thank God for that. Tamar gave birth to twin boys that were named at the time that they were born. Now, an interesting situation, one sort of broke out first, they were twins, and, and drew back in. So the, 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 the second one that came out was actually the firstborn. His name was Perez, means breaking out, because he sort of broke out first. Uh, but then there was the first out, secondborn, his name was uh, Zerah, which means scarlet or brightness. So the child didn't come out first, but they called him the firstborn anyway. As a result, these twins become ancestors of the descendants of Judah. And Tamar and her sons are mentioned in the genealogy, both of them, both, both twins are mentioned in the genealogy of Messiah in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. So this is kind of a, a, a not a great story. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't highlight this, this righteousness that we would hope it would, would highlight. But what it does show us is that Jesus works through even our sins and sinful situations that we allow in our lives that may even wreak havoc in our lives somehow because God is loving, merciful, and righteous and all-powerful and all-knowing. He can work his perfect will through very imperfect vessels. That just relaxes me. Not, Not because I'm looking for a reason to justify my sin, but just knowing that God is in control despite me is a great comfort. Okay, then we get into verse 5, and verse 5 deals with the sons of Perez, one of these twins we just talked about, and then verse 6 deals with the sons of Zerah, and they're all mentioned. One of the descendants there is, is called the son of Carmi, Achar, and we'll talk about him in a little bit, but I just want to stay on this subject of the descendants of Perez and Zerah, because what happens next from verses 9 through f- verse 55 is there are these long lists of the descendants, most of which is unnecessary to read for us, was very necessary for them. And first, in the first section, we deal with a number of different sons of Hezron, and this particular line is important to note. <coughs> and I'm going to mention it because it go, in verses 10 through 17, we actually go through the descendants of Ram, who's one of the sons of Perez, right? So, uh, and, and one of the sons of uh, the descendants of, of Judah. And Ram, he, he had this son Nashon, and Nashon was one of the leaders, we're told there in verse 10, that he was actually one of the leaders of the people of Judah when they were in the wilderness. And he comes up in the account in Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 7. So right away you already see that within the tribe of Judah there's a gift for leadership. Within the wilderness you have this man Nashon, he's a leader. His son is Salmon. He was the husband of Rahab. Most believe he was, you know, 
one of those spies that went into the, the, uh, the city and, and the city of uh, Jericho. Uh, but Salmon was the husband of Rahab. He was also the father of Boaz. And of course, Boaz from the book of Ruth was the husband of Ruth and the father of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And all of this is recapped in verses 10 through 17. And then we're told that David had sisters. This is a little interesting uh, because as we get all the way down to David, uh, it says Jesse, and it mentions all of da- uh, Jesse's sons. That would be David's brothers. All the names are mentioned there. You get down to the seventh son, and that, of course, is David. But it, we're told that there were, their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail, and Zeruiah's three sons were Abishai, Joab, and Asahel, and Abigail was the mother of Amasa, whose father was Jethro the Ishmaelite. Now, the only reason those descendants and, and nephews are important is because they became very important to the kingdom of David. In fact, those men, Abishai, Joab, uh, Asahel, they were David's most trusted generals. And of course, they were family. And I don't mind telling you that David sort of ran his kingdom much, almost like a, a crime family. I mean, they were, some of the things, that, everything from executions to battles to, to intrigue, as you read the life of David and his kingdom, it reads like some kind of a mafia chronicle. It really is quite interesting. Uh, the point of First Chronicles isn't so much to document that in detail, but as you read the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you'll get a lot more detail uh, regarding the kings of both Israel and Judah. So these were the most trusted generals David had. They were also among David's mighty men, which we'll look at in future studies. And then you have Amasa, who's mentioned as well. So these were the men that David trusted most. They were family, so you can imagine what. Now then, in verses 18 through 20, and I want to make sure I make this clear, there's a man named Caleb. You've heard of Caleb before. This is not the same Caleb. This is a different Caleb. Uh, Caleb is an interesting name. I believe it means dog. But anyway, it is definitely a different Caleb. Uh, it's not Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who's mentioned in other scriptures. He's actually mentioned then later in verse uh, 15 of chapter 4. But in verses 18 through 20 and verses 42 through 55, long lists that deal with the descendants of this Caleb, who was one of the sons of uh, Ram, who was one of the sons of Hezron, who was the son of Judah. Okay. Then we get to the descendants of Jeremiel, which is one of the sons of Hezron. Uh, they're all mentioned in verses 25 through 41. Again, again, I'm not going to read all those names, but that's that section. And then we continue, and we get to verses 21 through 24, which actually come before the section I just mentioned. In that section, you have a list of all of the sons of Hezron uh, that were not mentioned already. You have these two individuals, Segub and Asher, and their descendants are mentioned, so we'll move on. Then we get to uh, another section, which I kind of went over quickly, but I want to go back to, verses 6 through 8. It covers another stain, if you will, on the history of Israel. We talked about what happened with Judah and his descendants, and specifically with Tamar. Uh, But now let's look at verses 6 through 8. tells us that the sons of Zerah, now that's not one of the sons of Perez. We're talking about the other line through the other twin. And all the sons are mentioned there. There are five. And then we read the son of Carmi, Achar, who brought trouble on Israel by violating the ban on, devoted, on taking devoted things. And this is another story or account that's given to us. Uh, this is an interesting account. It is 
something that comes up in Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 7. And I'll just give you a summary. This man, Achar, or Achan, as he's sometimes called, he was the son of Carmi, who was the son of Zimri, uh, who was, you know, one of the sons of Zerah, one of the sons of Judah. Okay, so here's what we're told. Joshua warned the people when they conquered Jericho, don't take any of the spoils of the battle. They were to be devoted to God. But he decided that it would be a good idea to take some of it for himself. And in this you see what would belong to God being taken from someone secretly. Well, it didn't go over well. When they attacked Ai, things didn't go well. There was sin in the camp, as you read about in the book of Joshua. There was a problem. I have been on a lot of missions trips, maybe not as many as Pastor Joe, certainly, but I've been on enough. And I can tell you that there have been trips that have been much more spirit-led than others. There was one particular trip that we went on that everything went wrong. I mean, I think actually not everything went wrong. I shouldn't be, I, I should be fair. Not a, a lot of things went wrong. Actually, Rach, you were on that trip. It wasn't because of you, by the way. I promise. But we found out later that some of the members of our team really weren't in the right place. There were some issues, and it wasn't anyone from our church, but there were other people from another church that we found out later there were problems in their life. There, there were things that should have precluded them being a part of our team. But all types of things happened. I mean, someone broke their foot. Someone else got sick for two or three days. It was like a, a myriad of things happened. And it wasn't just one thing. It was a lot of things. And we all felt this spiritual oppression. We just felt like it wasn't that God wasn't with us, but we were definitely battling uphill. It was, it was a challenge. We got through it. God was, was glorified. It was a blessed trip in the end, but it wasn't without its challenges. And when we found out later what was going on in, in, in two of the people's lives, we, we looked at each other and Joe and I said, there was sin in the camp. The devil got a foothold. And even just one or two people had issues in their lives. It brought problems on the whole team. Because when you open up the door in your own personal life to something that's sinful or even demonic, and then you become part of a team that's supposed to be connected and spiritual, oftentimes what happens is, you know, the devil gets a foothold and he wreaks havoc. He causes trouble. Not all trouble is the result of sin, but sin will always bring trouble. And that's what we're told here. We're told Achar or Achan brought trouble on Israel. Isn't it interesting? I mean, there were a couple million people. One guy did what he wasn't supposed to do, and there was trouble in the camp. That's really something. You know, one guy. I mean, I might make a case for, well, why did everyone else have to suffer because of this one guy? But they did. Because we're a family in Christ, and that's why it's vitally important that we hold each other accountable. Confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we may be healed. Not that you have to be perfect. I've already said God works through imperfect people. But you know, you cause problems. You cause trouble when you allow sin and secret sin and unconfessed sin to continue in your life without being accountable. That's why the Bible says confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So this is why it's important that we live in a way of transparency. Not that everybody needs to know your business, but somebody should. Somebody should know who you are, your weaknesses, the things that you're challenged with, who can pray with you, not condemn you, 
What Aker or Aiken did is he kept it a secret. He took some stash. He took some of the things, you know, uh, he took an outfit. He took some gold and silver. He took some precious metals, and he hid them in his tent. And his family knew about it, too. They were all in on it. And as a result, sin was in the camp. And when they didn't win the battle at Ai, they went to the Lord, and the Lord revealed that there was sin in the camp. And it was this man. How'd you like to be him? This man, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, he was the person that caused all the trouble. And the Lord publicly identified him by his tribe, by his clan, and by his family. They discerned it was him. And they confronted him, and of course, it was him. And they found the stuff in the tent, and, you know, God dealt severely with this man and his family. They destroyed Achan and his family by the Lord's command, sending a message. There is no room for this kind of behavior in the camp. Wow. I think that must have sent a message to everyone else. Don't mess around. Don't violate God's law. I think of that. Now, that was early on in Israel's wilderness experience, right? And, uh, or excuse me, not Israel's wilderness experience. Israel's conquest of the promised land. This was early on. There were other issues that took place early on in the wilderness experience. But I think about what happened in the church in the book of Acts early on in about chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And it's as if God deals severely with certain things to prevent problems down the road. I'm going to tell you, parents, I'm going to say this because you know this is true. Kids, you know, foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, right? And there's a way to discipline it out of them, out of them. Uh, but if you say, well, they're little, they'll grow out of it. They never grow out of sin. No one does. You don't. I don't. They need to be disciplined. And we as Christians also need to be disciplined. And it's better to deal with it severely up front than it is to let a problem continue because it only gets worse. So I believe what God did in the church and what he did in the conquest, what he did in the wilderness— is early on when these problems happened, he dealt with his people severely. And it's a good thing he did deal with them severely because later on they had plenty of other problems to worry about. So I would say to you, don't let things go unchecked in your own life. Parents, don't let things go unchecked in your children's lives. Don't wait to deal with a problem. Better to deal with it severely immediately than to wait and say, ah, he'll grow out of it. He made a mistake. It was a boo-boo. You know, like I I can imagine... Um, how my dad would have dealt with it if I ever, like, let's say, got caught stealing. It wasn't something I had a real problem with. But uh, if I had gotten caught stealing, let's say, the first time, yeah, there wouldn't have been a second time. I might not have had an arm to steal with. My dad was rough. He loved us very much, but he was rough. And I think that message goes a long way with children when you deal with problems severely up front. Well, this is how God dealt with his children. So it's an interesting account. We can learn a few things from it. Okay. Then we get to the sons of David, and that's covered in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 9. They're listed there, uh, all of his different sons. And uh, he, he had a lot of children because he had a lot of wives. Okay, And I'm just going to summarize it for you. Uh, we have the sons of David. There's Amnon, Daniel, Absalom, Adonijah, Shephathiah, Ithream. They're the sons of David that were born in Hebron while he reigned as king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And that took place in those uh, first seven and a half years. He reigned in Hebron for seven and a half years until he became king over all Israel. And then he had a number of other sons, Shemua, Shoab, Nathan, Solomon. They were the sons of um, 
David and Bathsheba. They were born in Jerusalem while he reigned as king over all Israel. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years until his death. All of that is covered in that section. So he had a lot of kids, a lot of sons, had a lot of problems in his family, specifically because he didn't do what I just suggested should be done. Properly discipline your children. He didn't. He was a terrible father. He was an absentee father, a neglectful father, did not discipline his children, spoiled his children rotten. And as a result, he had major issues in his home. So here's God dealing with his children severely, and now David, a descendant of Judah, doesn't deal with his children, and the problems continue. So there are lessons here we can learn. Um, He also had nine additional sons to other concubines, um, and unnamed sons. They're not all mentioned, but but nine are mentioned. And then it mentions Tamar, who's mentioned at the last last part of verse 9, and Tamar was their sister. Now, of course, this is a different Tamar than the other Tamar we're talking about. But this Tamar was the daughter of David, who was actually raped by her brother Amnon. Now, how did that happen? That happened because of a lack of discipline, involvement in these children's lives. Amnon was the firstborn of David, supposed to be king, really, technically. Of course, we know later it was Solomon who was much younger. But Amnon raped his sister. This happened. There was molestation in the household, which often happens but specifically in a household where there's not discipline, where there's not accountability, where there's not involvement in children's lives, you're going to have things, maybe not this, but things like this happen. So it is vitally important for all of us to take these things seriously, and parents especially. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and you really do have to discipline it out of them. Okay, then we have the kings of Judah, which are mentioned in verses 10 through 16. Now, the kings of Judah represent an unbroken line of succession from David's descendants until the exile. And they're mentioned there. I'm not going to read all the names, but all of the kings of Judah are mentioned there. And uh, it brings you down to the time of the exile. There are a number of these names mentioned, and three of Josiah's sons, when Josiah became king, he died. Actually, three of his sons, and even his grandson at one point, succeeded him as king, but they were all wicked, and as a result, they were taken off the throne. Two of them, they only lasted three months. So you see, there were problems at that point. And then we get to the descendants of Jeconiah or Jehoiachin. This is very interesting to me because Jeconiah or Jehoiachin was removed from the throne. And then Zedekiah, his uncle, I believe, uh, took over the kingdom, one of the descendants or sons of Josiah. But he was imprisoned in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar when he was just 18 years old. He didn't last on the throne very long. But this man, Emil Marduk, also referred to as Evil Merodach, he had inherited the kingdom from his father Nebuchadnezzar in 561 BC and we're told specifically uh, in in the, the books of the Old Testament that Jehoiachin was released by this man, Evil Merodach, He was in prison for 37 years. Remember, 18? 37 years later. And for some reason, and I think you know why, Evil Merodach showed incredible kindness to this man, Jehoiachin. Some have suggested that Evil Merodach was in prison by his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and that these two met while they were both in prison. We don't know that, but it's highly likely because Nebuchadnezzar was a really rotten guy. And imprisoning his own son would not have been beyond his character. 
So for whatever reason, he showed him incredible kindness. Kind of reminds me of the Count of Monte Cristo, you know? Like, things can happen under terrible circumstances that ultimately open the door to wonderful things. And again, there's a lesson there. Horrible things can lead to wonderful things. Joseph, Joseph, who was in prison, we know where that went. Those things were working for good. So what's the lesson? Things might be really difficult, but know that God works not only through our sins and despite our sins, but he works through difficult circumstances as well. Doesn't he? Amen? And that was the case with Jehoiachin. Evil man, not even a man, really more just a young man, taken to Babylon, imprisoned. When evil Merodach takes over the kingdom, he releases him and shows incredible kindness. In fact, Jehoiachin became one of evil Merodach's trusted officials for the rest of his life in Babylon. And this is after the, the, the captivity. Check this out. Guess who is a descendant of Jehoiachin? Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, was descended from Jehoiachin. Hmm. Is God working? Did God work through really difficult circumstances? Well, yeah. I mean, had Jehoiachin not been released, the kingly line of Messiah would have been cut off. The Lord preserved Jehoiachin and his descendants. He fulfilled his promise to David. Jesus is the rightful heir. Is that door open? Just let them know that they're being a little loud. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David through his stepfather, if you will, Joseph. He sort of received the right to be king through his stepfather, who wouldn't have even been born if not for the kindness that was shown to his ancestor. God was working through that as well. You know, the Lord had pronounced, I don't know if you know this, the Lord had pronounced a blood curse upon the, uh, the line of Jehoiakim, whose son was Jehoiachin. It's recorded in Jeremiah 36, verse 30, that said a descendant of Jehoiakim would never sit on the throne of Israel. And sure enough, Jehoiachin was taken off the throne and no descendant ever sat on the throne again. But the problem is, if if descendant, like Jesus was not related to Joseph, so technically the blood curse does not apply to him. Jesus is not related to this king by blood, only by title through his stepfather since he's the son of Mary and not of Joseph. So see how God works around things and works through things despite our sin? Okay, well, Judah's other descendants are listed for us in verses 1 through 8 and verses 11 through 20. I'm not going to read through those. And the sons of Shelah, son of Judah, are are covered in verses 21 through 23. Again, I'm not going to look at those, and that's where we'll stop tonight. But I want to end our study in verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, we read of, of chapter 4 now. We're, now, we're, now we're all the way in chapter 4. And I've just summarized verses 1 through 8 and 11 through 20 and uh, verses 21 through 23 because they're just lists of names that record these different descendants. But here's what we read. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Now, there's a book called The Prayer of Jabez, and there's a lot made of this particular portion of Scripture. It's an interesting book. It's it's more of a devotional than a book, really. 
And I can recommend it. It's quite good. I think Wilkerson wrote it. Uh, but anyway, Jabez was considered more honorable than the other descendants of Judah. And he's listed here, and he's highlighted, and he's shown to be an honorable man. Now, his mother named him Jabez. Now, the word Jabez sounds like the Hebrew word for pain. Imagine naming your kid pain. Parents, I'm sure you have times you've told your kids you're being a pain. But imagine being named pain or something that sounds a lot like pain. She named him this because of the pain she experienced in giving birth to him. She must have had a very extremely difficult birth or... He may have been deformed or handicapped and had some situation that caused her a great deal of pain. Maybe he was very sickly. Maybe he wasn't entirely well. There seems to be an indication by his prayers that he had some issues. Maybe he wasn't entirely well. Maybe he had health issues. Maybe he was crippled. I don't know. But I do know that the pain is the highlighted part because his name actually sounds like the word for pain. What did Jabez do? We're told that he cried out to the Lord against the sound of his name. I know my mother said, she, she called me pain, she, she named me something like pain, but I'm going to pray against that definition of my life. He prayed that the Lord would bless him and give him a greater portion of the land, which would have been difficult if he did have health issues. And he prayed that the Lord would be with him and keep him from harm and free from pain. And we're told that the Lord graciously answered his prayer. Now, I just want to stop a moment and apply this as we close. I want you to understand that in your life, your parents and those around you, maybe bullies at school, maybe, maybe others in your life, called you names. If you ever had a nickname you really hated, or maybe your family sort of defined you, in a negative way. Maybe, maybe you had parents or brothers or sisters that said, oh, you'll never amount to anything. You're a pain. You're a loser. They, they said things about you and defined you early on in a negative way. Some people spend the rest of their life in therapy because of these things. And, and, and I understand why. It's very damaging and hurtful to be called names or to be defined in a negative way by others. Others may define you, oh, you know that, you know our son, our third son, he'll never amount to anything. And, and kids hear this, and, and they grow up, and they think, oh, I'll never amount to anything. I'm not like my brothers. Or, 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 or a woman grows up, and she is, well, you know, my daughter, she'll probably not get married because she's not, not very skinny or because she's not pretty enough. When kids hear these things, it defines them in very negative ways. And you shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do that to one another. But being wicked, it oftentimes happens. So what did, I mean, what did Jabez do? He had a horrible name. His name means pain. It sounds like pain. And every time anyone thought of him, looked at him as he's growing up, oh yeah, yeah, you're the pain, right? You're the one that caused your mother all that pain, right? What did he do? Let's look at it again as we close. I love this. This is the answer, brothers and sisters, to redefining yourself in Christ, seeing yourself as a child of God and not defined by others, whoever they may be. What did he do? Well, first of all, he was honorable. And the scripture tells us that. The world saw him, his family saw him as a pain, but he was honorable. More honorable than his brothers, and maybe his brothers even picked on him. 
His mother named him Jabez. But here's what Jabez did. He cried out to the God of Israel. Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. How do we become free of these monikers, these these definitions, these horrible things that have stuck to us in our formative years? How do we redefine ourselves or how do we find affirmation and, and, and acknowledgement of our character in Christ? We cry out to God and ask him to grant our requests. Amen? So the prayer of Jabez represents a person who wanted to be better and different than they were defined. Who didn't want to fulfill that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that oftentimes happens when people say nasty, mean, and horrible things about either their children or their relatives or their friends. There's no reason for any one of us to be defined by others. Only in Christ do we find our character Do we find our definition affirmation? Do we find ourselves? We find ourselves in Christ. Amen. Lord, Heavenly Father, may we be defined not by others, but only by you. As you show us mercy and kindness despite our sin. Despite our sin, just like you worked in Judah's life and Tamar's life. Oh, Lord, may we confess our sins. May we not be like Achan or Acre. May we not allow that to go on in our lives. May we be honorable and cry out. May, may we be the kind of people that honor you with our lives. And whether we're raising children or mentoring others, may we live our lives to bring you glory. And may we not be the people that others see us. May we be the people that live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.